Last week we had a guest speaker, and most guest speakers start by uh, thanking you for the privilege of being here. And, you know, I was thinking uh, really for Steve and I who know you, know who we're speaking to, how much more I would say we feel, I certainly feel, it is a privilege to be here with you, to worship with you, to grow and learn, to be on a common journey with you, and certainly to speak. Uh, I'm also amazed that uh, we have an organ that's been here 90 years and it's gonna take another 90 years to replace it? Is that what you said? No. No, that's not, okay. Just a few months. It's gonna seem like a long time, but it's really not. It's gonna be here before you know it. So uh, today we're gonna hear uh, uh, just a part of a long story about uh, the people of God and uh, it comes from Exodus. And I'm just gonna dive into the first part of it. When the people realized that Moses was taking forever to come down from the mountain, they rallied around Aaron and said, do something. You ever had anyone tell you that? Make some gods for us who will lead us. We want some real leadership. Moses, that Moses, that man who got us out of Egypt, who knows what has happened to him? The implication being maybe he's abandoned us or he's been killed. Aaron said to them, take off all the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And they did it. And they removed all the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from their hands and he cast it in the form of a calf, shaping it as with an engraving tool. And the people responded with enthusiasm. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Really? Aaron, taking in all that he saw, built an altar for the calf. And Aaron announced, tomorrow we'll have a feast for Yahweh. And early in the morning, the people got up and offered a whole burnt offering and brought forth a peace offering to Yahweh. And then the people sat down to eat and drink and began to party, and it turned into a wild orgy for Baal. And then I'll just interrupt the the reading and, and say what happens next is God sees what's happening and decides he's gonna wipe these people out. He's had it with them, he's angry, And Moses says this, God, stop your anger. Think about what you're doing and don't bring evil against your people. Think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your servants, whom you gave a promise, telling them, I will make you a great nation, as many as the stars in the sky. And so God thought about it. And God decided not to do the evil that he had threatened against God's people. That's what happened. And then Moses came near to the camp and he saw the calf and the people dancing and his anger flared and he threw down the tablets and smashed them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made, he melted it down with fire and pulverized it into powder And then he scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. 
This is the word of the Lord. Memory loss is a really hard thing to watch. It's even harder when we watch it happen to a whole people at the same time, an entire group of people who forget who they are. The Hebrews had been set free from Pharaoh, been liberated from slavery just a few short months earlier, and they can't even seem to remember how it happened. Was it Moses? Was there this God called Yahweh? Was it a combination of coincidences? And now they're out in the desert on the way to a land they've never seen, but they're not taking the coastal highway, the direct route. No, Moses and this God are taking them the long way. They're, they're, this God that, is Moses, that Moses keeps talking to is really just a cloud all day, a mist, a moving puff. And at night, it's an un- untouchable fire, not the kind of fire you can warm up to or cook marshmallows over, but just an untouchable glow and heat and light in the desert darkness. No wonder that this group, the Hebrews, decided to look for better leadership and maybe for a better religion. When Moses stayed away for a month, another consult with this ephemeral God, he said, there was noise in the system. And then another 10 days passed and still no Moses. Who was that Moses anyway? And so they recruited his brother Aaron to take the lead. And they gave him instructions to get in line with the times, to adopt a religion more in keeping with the culture. A God you can see and touch. More positive. A God who stands for fertility and progress and the growth of GDP and doesn't make us look like fools wandering around in the desert on the back roads following a cloud and going in circles. If the story of the liberation of the slaves from Pharaoh is Israel's creation story, then this is Israel's story of the fall. How could they have so quickly forgotten, forgotten the powerful, liberating grace of God through Moses that changed everything for them? I guess we shouldn't be too hard on the Hebrews, though. I mean, there have been plenty of times when I have been weary of God's circuitous ways in my life, the slow path of spiritual maturity, the obscure ways that God seems to work out God's will or answer prayers. You know, the journey towards spiritual maturity is seldom the highway up the coast. It's usually the indirect way toward peace and love. I think we'd all prefer 
a God more compatible with our culture. You know, a God we could hold up proudly in the marketplace or at school or at the club. Not the God of self-denial or self-emptying. Not the God who says things start small as a mustard seed. We want a God that's big like a tower. We want a God who says we can be served, not become servants. Now, we understand all too well how the Hebrews made a mess of things. What's hard to understand is how any self-respecting creator of the universe could still want to live in partnership with such a people. In fact, in Exodus, God doesn't want to continue. God is ready to throw in the towel and leave this stiff-necked crowd to die in the desert. And how could we expect otherwise? I mean, think about it. If all we ever get from God is grace and mercy, if the universe is endlessly supple to our whims, and there are no consequences for our choices, no moral boundaries, well, that's just not the God with whom Israel travels. And I don't think it's the way we see the world either. The God who freely and graciously liberates is also uncompromising and demands an ethical distinctiveness. It's called a covenant relationship. A covenant. In Exodus, it's an if-then relationship. If you obey my word and heed my will and follow my path, then I will bless you and keep you and be your God. So this if-then relationship is broken. And here comes Moses, unappreciated, forgotten Moses. He sees the divine rage, and he begins to intercede, to talk God down. He says, God, look. Look at what the possibilities are here. You could be embarrassed. You could lose everything you promised What about the promises you made? And quickly, it seems, God changes her mind. The future in this story is not predetermined. It's not set in stone. God is not immutable. The fate of Israel is not settled. The future is open because God is responsive and alive and interactive in relationship. How else could it be if God is love? So, of course, God is affected by people. When someone says to me, well, that's just God's plan, or God must have planned it this way, I'm thinking, really? I don't know. I think God's plan went out the window with Adam and Eve. And ever since then, God has been negotiating and responding and living 
in community in grace and in hope with God's people. So Moses intercedes. He says at one point, well, if you're going to wipe out all the people, you might as well kill me too. He risks himself. He puts himself out there as the one seeking reconciliation. He says, God, you really don't want to do that first intention. He negotiates for forgiveness, for God's enduring presence, for the keeping of God's promises. And the Lord responds this way in Exodus 34. Here's how God is described. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God has changed her mind. This is the sum of evangelical faith. It's the substance of radical theology of grace, the primal warrant in the Bible for the claim that at its core, Reality is concerned with reconciliation and forgiveness and finally, unity. These words tell the truth about God, the truth that has always been about God from the beginning. Life consists in a yes from God that is not negated even by our orgies of recalcitrance and autonomy and greed and brutality to which we are daily tempted. The good news. But God doesn't stop talking there. It goes on in Exodus 34. God continues, yet this God by no means will clear the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Wow. So the second half of Yahweh's self-identity is heavy duty. It's ominous. It's a conversation stopper. I imagine things got awfully quiet on the mountain with Moses. You see, the core theological problem for Moses, and I think for all of us, is how to hold this together. I mean, there are ways to weasel out of this contradictory self-revelation, but finally it is a contradiction. When God thinks about Israel and us and our well-being, there is forgiveness. And when God thinks about God's self and God's holiness, there will be no mocking. All of our self-hatred cannot eradicate God's generosity on one hand, but on the other, all of our warm, fuzzy positiveness cannot override the, uh, the reality that God will be God. There are those among us who have been touched by the graciousness of God. And for us, 
we find in that touch a warrant for mercy and inclusiveness. There are also those among us who have been touched by the wild holiness and mystery of God and who read from it an agenda of demanding moral distinctiveness. When the heavens come to earth, what we get is not only the wondrous solidarity of forgiveness, but also the demands of God's holiness. What to do? Moses bows down. That's what Moses does. Moses bows down and worships and then prays and begins to advocate for reconciliation. He begins to negotiate. He begins to seek peace between God and the people. And I think our work, if we're to be a movement of reconciliation, is no different from the work of Moses. We are to pray and to worship and to seek reconciliation where it is needed. I was looking at the story where Jesus is crucified, where he comes to be put to death as an enemy of the state and of his religion. And when he was in the midst of that dying, he didn't seek retribution or escape. What he did do was petition God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mediating reconciliation. Jesus' prayer suggests that on this Friday, matters could have gone some other way. God could have responded to the crisis with a severity that he intended on the Israelites. It could have been a day of retribution. But Jesus prays. And like Jesus, Moses makes a bid for reconciliation too on that mountain. We have confessed then, we have confessed since that day, that Friday, since that day of prayer of Jesus on the cross, that it was a day of grace-filled reconciliation. And so the prayer of Jesus and the advocacy of Moses must always be the work of the church. We're called, if we're going to be a movement of reconciliation, to pray for each other, to pray for our reconciliation, and to worship the one who will not be compromised. Let us pray. God of grace and demand, we believe in your enduring presence with us, and not only with us, but with others. You work out your will in faithful partnership on earth as in heaven. Many are the idols by which we are tempted, the yearning for power over our neighbor, the suffering visited upon our enemies, the belief that if we just had more time or more energy, we could be better people, 
the dependence upon consuming and the comfort of material things. And so we give you thanks this day that we can come here and recall, remember who we are. We give you thanks for prophets and disciples before us who call us to our true identity. This morning we give you thanks for many decades of worship in this place accompanied by this wondrous musical instrument. We give you thanks for voices lifted up in prayer and praise and hearts full of joy and grace. We pray this day for those who find themselves in dark valleys, resentful, afraid. Transform us, O God, into your living instruments of peace for their lives. If someone requires our time, help us to give it. If someone asks for our patience, help us to grant it. If someone argues for a different way, help us to listen. If someone wants to bless our lives, help us to receive it openly. If someone struggles beneath a burden, help us to carry it with them. And if someone suffers from a wrong we have done, help us to make amends. Oh God, may your presence and your mercy be with those who suffer from fires and waters, from war and famine, from discrimination and sickness. For we pray all of this as your people on a journey together, as your son taught us all to say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat>